Father, we thank you very much for the privilege of being able to get together this morning as a church family and as an opportunity to know more about you. But what we really ask for right now is um, a, a way to engage with you and encounter you, perhaps that we haven't been able to do earlier in this week. Uh, perhaps some of us even this morning have not been able to open our Bibles this last week. I pray that you would use this time right now to draw us really close to you and that your spirit would have preeminence in this place. You promised that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and our guide, and so we claim that right now and ask that you would use the Holy Spirit for that purpose to instruct us so that it would, would cause life transformation for us, Father. So I, I pray specifically that you would give us eyes to see, to see things that we can't see on our own without the work of the Holy Spirit, and use that to cause transformation for us, grow us in our walk with you. It's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. So if uh, you're new here, and, or perhaps you haven't been here in the last couple of weeks, where we've been in the book of Acts is uh, uh, the first four chapters over the last previous weeks, and we've made it into Acts chapter 5, and, and here's a very brief synops- synopsis of what's going on. The, the church is just exploding in growth. It, it's increasing literally by the day, and it, to the point where it's into the thousands of people who are coming. Now, as thousands of people respond and the church explodes, it's drawing attention of the leaders around, especially in the capital city of Jerusalem. They're beginning to recognize this isn't something that's just going to fade away. This is something that we've got to deal with. No one can deny that God is at work, and especially in a new way, something they haven't seen before. But as we're going to see this morning, not everyone is happy with the success of what's going on with the church. And so the leadership of Israel begins coming against the church because when successful churches make waves, Satan continues to retaliate and there's retaliation that takes place. Well, that shouldn't surprise us because Jesus promised that there would be persecution of the church. Matter of fact, he said it this way, John 15, 20, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That's not an if, that's not a maybe. He's saying they're going to do it. Matter of fact, he took it up one notch further when he said this in John 16 too, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think he offers God service. What we'll see this morning is that the same religious establishment that was really hostile towards Jesus now turns all of their energy and begins focusing it on the apostles specifically because of what's going on in the church. Now, Peter, when he's a fairly old man, just before the end of his life, wrote the book of 1 Peter. He's looking back over the span of his life, and he said this about some of the persecution. He said this, 1 Peter 2.20, If when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. But then he steps it up. In 1 Peter 4, he says, If you are reviled for the name of Christ... You are blessed because the Spirit of glory and God rest upon you. Meaning he knows the Holy Spirit's there. If you're getting reviled for the name of Christ, it's because you're a Christ follower. You're blessed as a result of that. Well, let's take those thoughts and step into the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5, and we're going to pick it up at verse 12. We left off at verse 11 last week. It says this, At the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. 
However, the people held them in high esteem. What you're seeing here is a summary introduction. He's kind of reaching back into the previous four chapters, the things that have happened, and the previous stories that we've learned about, like what we learned last week with the fear that was caused because of what happened with Ananias and Sapphira and how God took stern discipline with them. He's also talking about the increasing of the numbers. It's causing awe among the people in the region around Jerusalem. And then he mentioned in verse 12, signs and wonders. Well, he's given us one already as an example, and that's when Peter healed the man at the gate who was disabled, who was born disabled and had been living his entire life that way, about 40 years. Now what we see is all the apostles are doing miraculous work. So what you see Dr. Luke doing is he's setting up this story. He's transitioning from one set of episodes into a new story, a kind of a climactic story where we move from this sense of awe and fear into this time of intense jealousy on the part of the Sadducees. They just really amp it up in this story. So it's not too difficult to follow. Now before we move into verse 14, I just want you to notice something. It says in verse 12, they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. I don't have a picture for you to look at, but Solomon's portico, if you would picture like a, a, a long plaza today like we might have in a shopping plaza, this was an open-air portico, and it had columns, one after another, a long string of columns. And so this was an area where the Christians liked to hang out. It's attached to the temple. It's part of the temple courtyard, and it could literally fit thousands of people. This is an area where Jesus would teach typically when he went to the temple. It's where John was teaching and Peter were teaching when they were first arrested, as we saw in Acts chapter 3. And so what we see here is all the Christians are hanging out in one accord in this place that's attached to the temple. It'd be kind of like having a coffee shop attached to your church. People get together and they talk about theology and they associate and discuss the matters of life. That's where we find them, but here's the paradox. You come into verse 13 and it says, none of the rest would hang out with them, meaning people who were not believers. Nevertheless, they held them in high esteem. So they got great respect for this biblical community. They recognize something's going on. They're drawn to it, yet they want to keep their distance. So this is really remarkable to me despite the intense discipline that God brought about on Ananias and Sapphira, as we saw last week, people are still drawn to the church. Verse 14 explains that. It says, And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number. Last we knew, when numbers were being counted in the book of Acts, we were left with the impression there was about 10,000 men. It didn't even mention the women at that point. But we knew there were 10,000 men, and so you add women and children, it's probably closer to 20,000. And now he's mentioning men and women, and he apparently has lost count because now he's just saying, there's just multitudes, and they're coming on a daily basis. We don't even know what the number is. But here's what's really clear to us. There is an amazing, uncompromising commitment to holiness and to unity, meaning they know how to love on each other, and to absolute purity. And they're not doing this out of legalism, but they're doing this out of a basis of a commitment to Jesus. I don't know if you remember, but Jesus holds this really high standard for Christ followers. He says, this is what commitment to me looks like. Here's an example of that. Matthew 10, 32, Jesus speaking. Everyone, therefore, who shall confess me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. 
So he's got a really high standard. If you want to read more about that, go beyond verse 32. Read 33, 34, 35, where Jesus talks in Matthew 10 about what it looks like to be a true Christ follower. He talks about how we treat each other in our relationships here on earth. But let's jump back into the story. Verse 15, it says this, to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. Now, do you notice that the stir is not now just limited to Jerusalem? Matter of fact, this is the first recorded instance in the New Testament where the church is beginning to spread beyond Jerusalem. It's beginning to spread to other cities. People are coming from other cities, and they're drawn into what's going on here. But here's what I want you to especially pay attention to. Verse 12 said, At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders are being done. When you see signs and wonders, miracles in the Bible, it's always for one reason. It's always to point to truth. And and it's always to point to Jesus. That's the purpose of signs and wonders. So we've got signs and wonders going on. It's pointing to spiritual truth. It's confirming that the apostles are who they say they are, that they really are belonging to God. So verse 15 picks up by saying, to such an extent, they even carried the sick people out into the street, hoping that Peter's shadow would fall on them. Uh, Let me explain to you what's going on to help you understand this. Um, When they use the term cots and pallets, it's for a very specific reason. Cots in the Greek language represented something like a small sofa, a small bed. Only the wealthy people could afford that. Remember, there's, there's no middle class in first century Israel. You, you either have very little or you have a lot, but there's no in-between. And so you've got the very wealthy individuals who can afford the cots, but you find the very poor individuals with this pallet, meaning they've got a piece of fabric and they stuff some straw inside it. So they're so poor, all they have is a weak, weak mattress And if they're very rich, they have a couch with handles on it, and somebody's carried them out into the streets. See, the use of these two terms implies something. Both the rich and the poor recognize there's something amazing going on here, and they want to be part of it. Now, today, we're pretty skeptical about an individual who says they're a faith healer, right? You read about it in the news, you hear about somebody saying they're going to a healing service or that they were miraculously healed. It immediately causes our, our heretic buttons to go off, thinking, well, what's going on there? I wonder if I should be skeptical of this or not. Here's what I want you to notice. No one is skeptical about what's going on here. Far from being skeptical about the healings, all classes of society are so aware of the presence of the power among the apostles, they just hope that if Peter passes by, his shadow might fall on them. Why is that mentioned? Well, in the first century, it was common to believe that a person's shadow was an extension of themselves. There was kind of a superstition going on. They believed that there was actually a power source associated with the shadow of an individual. And I don't want to say that what's going on here with Peter is superstitious. That's not what I'm implying. But there was a belief among the first century that a person's shadow was an extension of their being. So they're actually writing here about something that people actually believed that there was power in Peter's shadow. So when you read the account closely, you notice it doesn't say they were healed because of his shadow. It just says they're hoping that when his shadow goes by. So understand, here's what they're aware of. God's power resides with the apostles. 
They're recognizing that absolutely. Just as healing flowed from Jesus, it's flowing from the apostles. So Luke tells us all of that to help us understand where he's going with the story. And where he's going is that the supreme court of the land is on high alert. They're very aware of what's going on. Matter of fact, the court is so alarmed that they're aware that they need to bring the apostles in, so they're going to have them arrested. Why? Because of the rapid growth of the gospel, and it results in bitter opposition. One thing we know about human nature is that wounded pride is really, really ugly, isn't it, church? It can be really ugly. Well, the Christians are operating on the turf of the high priest. They're in the temple courtyard where they're having success, where they're teaching people, is right in the high priest's backyard. So go with me to verse 17. But the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is, the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. I don't know what you know about the, the political structure in the first century, but if you have Sadducees and Pharisees, you need to be thinking political theology. So like we have Republicans, Democrats, Tea Party, Libertarians, we have many political parties here in this country. They have these two political parties. They have the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Now the thing remarkable about the Pharisees are is this, that they concentrated all of their efforts on defeating Jesus while he was on planet Earth. They came against him in opposition. The Sadducees are the chief opponents of the church. They are the ones you find in the book of Acts coming against the church constantly. But the two groups come together under one purpose, at all cost. They don't want Rome provoked because they don't want to lose their privileged position. They don't want their lifestyle threatened. So we see here that the high priest has them arrested, and I'm seeing three reasons for it. The first one we learned about in Acts chapter 3 when they were told, don't talk about Jesus anymore. His name is politically incorrect. You may not talk about him, teach about him, share him with anyone. Stop talking about Jesus. They were told that in Acts chapter 3. And here's the second reason. They're being arrested because the witness that the apostles is giving negates Sadducees' theology. See, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees didn't believe that you would be resurrected at the end of your life when you die. And so the apostles are teaching that Jesus was not only resurrected, but Christ's followers will be resurrected. So those two things come directly against the Sadducees' position. But here's a third reason. It's not mentioned there, but I'm just going to draw the parallel out. I think they're having them arrested mostly because of envy. Envy that the disciples, the apostles, are being so successful what they're doing, this great success that they're having. See, these leaders never attract this kind of attention themselves. Nobody shows up the synagogue to listen to them speak in these numbers by the thousands. And above all, they're teaching about this very man that they murdered is alive from the dead and that he's the power source behind all the miracles. That's not going to be tolerated. So because of the severity of the situation, Verse 18 says they had them put in public jail. Now, this is remarkable. I hope you see the irony in this. Public jail means they were held on display. They're arrested in such a way that the community knows that the court's in control. 
See, the public jail is where they put the common criminals, where they put thieves and and rabble-rousers. So they put the apostles in common prison, public jail. Now, first of all, it's really hard for me to understand why they feel that prison bars can stop people who are carrying out miracles, right? What are you thinking there when you're arresting somebody who's carrying out miracles, actually causing people who are born disabled to begin walking? Well, they're going to go ahead and put him in prison. So we know specifically prison is no obstacle for God. A grave can't hold our God down. So how can a petty jail cell stop him? So don't miss the irony going on here. They've placed them in public jail, meaning they're in this display situation. Go forward with me into the next verse. Verse 19 But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison. So here's something you need to know. Sadducees don't only believe that there's no resurrection. Sadducees don't believe in angels. They don't believe that there are angels in existence. So what does God do? God sends an angel. So go back to verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison. And taking them out, he said, go stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. I love it when God puts himself on display. Don't you you see see this? See the irony in this? The very thing that they say doesn't exist. God's saying, yeah, you don't believe in this? Okay, I'll send the angel out for you. Now, we don't understand, especially what ranking of angel this would be unless God clarified it for us. So when you look at verse 19 and it says an angel of the Lord, that should put you on high alert because an angel of the Lord isn't mentioned very often in the Bible. It's not just an ordinary angel. Uh, If there are ordinary angels, I don't know that there's ordinary. So there's rankings of angels in Scripture, you know, cherubim, seraphim, messenger angels. Well, what's mentioned here is the angel of Yahweh. Now, when you see that in the Bible, that should cause you to say, there's something remarkable going on here. God himself is intervening in this situation. Why do you say that? Because an angel of the Lord is known as the one who stands in the very presence of God. The Bible indicates that there are tens of millions, hundreds of millions of angels, maybe into the billions, I don't know for sure. But among those angels, there's very few who stand at God's throne. We get an example of that from Luke chapter 1, when Gabriel showed up during the Christmas story and began talking about who he is. It says this, Luke chapter 1, the angel said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. See, that's an angel of the Lord, one who stands and delivers information directly from God the Father. So an angel of the Lord has been sent to the prison, and at the release of the prisoners, there's an instruction that's given. Go, stand, and speak. I want you to go back to where you were arrested, stand there, and speak. See, they're freed not to hide. They're freed not to run away. They're to go back to where they came from. See, God's using the circumstances to give an opportunity. They're freed not to go work on their 401k. They're freed not to go back to fishing. They're freed to go back and carry out what they started to do. So he specifically says, go stand and speak. And I gave you a word in your notes this morning from the Greek language. This word, uh, I won't even try and pronounce it. It, it. It talks about standing in a way in such that you can't be pushed over easily. So when you look at your notes this morning, look at the one that says dogged steadfastness. That's what's required in the face of opposition. Some of you have played sports. 
You know that if you've been involved in sports like in football, if you stand with your legs astride of each other, you're an easy target. You can be knocked over easily. But when you stand with your legs separated and one in front of the other, you're an immovable object. You can fight back. That's the imagery that's used here with this stand. In other words, there's going to be opposition, Peter. There's going to be opposition, Andrew. There's going to be opposition, Bartholomew. They're going to come against you, so stand firm. Be prepared with a doggedness way of approach to this. You've got to stand firm against the opposition. Does the command from the angel seem a little reckless to you? Just hold that thought. See, most people, when they're released from prison, are are not thinking of going back to the very place that they've been arrested at, right? Move forward with me. Let's go back into verse 20. What does he say? Go stand and speak the whole message of this life. See, they're not free to hide. They're free to be bold to return to the place where they've been arrested, I remember reading in the 1970s about an individual who escaped from southern Michigan prison by an individual who flew a helicopter into the yard, into the prison yard, and the inmate climbed into the helicopter and they flew away. I don't know that I have all the details correct, but this is what I do remember. The helicopter flew north and and let the prisoner out somewhere around Leslie, Michigan. Do you know where the prisoner went? He went to a bar. And and I would think most people, when you're freed from prison, are going to run and hide, right? Apparently, he's thirsty, so he's running to a bar. In in the case of the apostles, do you think they're not going to, certainly not going to go back to the place where they've just been arrested at, but that's what God is telling them. Go right back and begin speaking the whole message of this life. See, you and I this morning, church, we have been freed by the power of God, not just for the sake of freedom. As much as I love my salvation, I'm grateful for it. I know you are this morning. Not just for the sake of our freedom, but so that we can tell others. That's God's great desire. And if you wonder what the message looks like that they talked about in Solomon's portico, the old version of John First John, when John's very aged, probably in his 80s, looking back over his life, he writes about the message that they shared, the message of this life. Look with me on the screen. Kind of a longer passage, but it's really important for you to see it. This is the message, First John 1.5, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Can you not just hear them saying that in Solomon's portico? What are they talking about when they're standing there? This is what they're talking about. If we say that we have not sinned, we've made him a liar, and his word is not in us. I can just hear the apostle saying that in the portico. See, that's the good news. Jesus came to give us eternal life, those who are spiritually dead. So what we're looking at here is God's great desire, his immediate concern for Christ's followers, is that people who have been set free will tell others how they can also be set free. This is what he's directing the apostles to do. Let's look at it from this angle. God knows everything, right, church? 
No, you do not sound enthusiastic about that. God knows everything, right, church? Okay, he's sovereign. He knows everything. He's omniscient. So that means God knows about the persecution. That means God knew they were being arrested to the degree that we see the evidence that he sent his own messenger angel to deliver them from prison. So God knows about the persecution. God knows they're arrested. He knows they've been put in prison. Yet, in the face of the opposition, with the full knowledge of the persecution, he sends them right back in. See, any attempt to silence them, God is saying, stay focused. Stay focused on this new life. What do the apostles do? They do exactly what they're told to do. Verse 21, upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. Now, it's early in the morning, right? It's about daybreak, we're told here. That means it's, it's the month of May when this is taking place. It's probably about 6 o'clock in the morning. People are beginning to show up for the early morning sacrifice. I'm thinking the Sadducees are probably not showing up to the office until about 8 in the morning. So there's a couple hours that are going by. They're beginning to preach in the temple setting. Before the Sadducees even know that they're free, the apostles are back preaching. So this is why this is stunning to me. They choose to live boldly. They choose to obey ferociously. So here's their mindset in this. I'm going to leave the consequences to God. God has told me what to do. I'm going to leave the consequences to him. I want to live like that, church. Mark Kring wants to live like that, to obey ferociously. Look at what God has told them to do, to go back to the very place where they were arrested. Now, I have to smile when I look at the story, and I begin thinking of the prison guards showing up at the prison to bring the prisoners before the Sanhedrin because things are not going quite the way they planned. Watch this in verse 22. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison, and they returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely, and the guards standing at the door. But when we had opened up, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. Now, it's not surprising if you go to a prison and you find it locked, right? You, you want to find a prison locked. You don't want it unlocked, so that's not surprising. And it's not surprising to find guards at the door. That's what you would expect to find. But when there's no prisoners inside the prison, you've got a problem, right? Something has happened. Something to the degree where it actually agitates them. They're distressed. Now they're perplexed. They're wondering, how do we stop these people? Well, they're powerless to stop them. This is the worst situation imaginable. People from all over the nation are flooding into Jerusalem because they're hearing about the miracles. They're hearing about this new way of life, the very miracles the Sanhedrin refuses to believe in. Go to the next verse, verse 25. But someone came and reported to them, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Of course they are. They're doing exactly what God told them to do. See, in the same moment they get the news of the escape, if you're in human nature form, you'd be thinking, well, the apostles probably ran away. They're in hiding, and that would be bad enough. But now they hear the news, they're standing in the temple, and they're teaching. 
They're resuming right where they left off. This is the ultimate act of courage. They get the applause, right? Because this is the ultimate act of courage. Their life is hanging by a thread. But if you're a courtroom member, if you're one of the judges of the Sanhedrin, this is the ultimate act of disrespect. They take this as incredibly offensive. Go with me to verse 26. Then the captain went along, meaning the chief of police, the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people, that they might be stoned. Not that the apostles would be stoned, by the way, that the guards would be stoned. Verse 27, when they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Just for a moment, let your eyes drift to verse 28. You have filled Jerusalem with this teaching. How cool is that? Would you not like that to have been said about you? Would you like to be accused of that? You have filled all of the Lansing metro area with the teachings of Jesus? I'd take that accusation. Okay, bring it on. That's a great accusation. See, in their case, it's true. The Sanhedrin, as a result, is ready to resort to the most drastic measures. Now remember, precedence has already been set. Acts chapter 3, Peter and John were hauled in before the Supreme Court. They were told, you will not speak in the name of Jesus anymore. You will not teach in his name. You will not talk to people about Jesus. His name is off limits. So precedent has been set. That's why the high priest says, we gave you strict orders. Now, in the Greek language, it's very specific about what's happening to the apostles at this time. A picture in your mind, a horseshoe-shaped room with tiered seating. That's the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is made up of a Supreme Court of 70 members plus one, 70 from the Pharisees and the Sadducees who have gathered together a, a joint session of Congress, and the high priest presides over it all. And we're told when the guards brought the apostles in, they stood them before this body of ruling leaders. In the Greek language, it's more specific, saying it's, they stood them up, meaning all the judges are seated and the apostles are standing in the middle of the horseshoe, and they're being interrogated. And the high priest begins the interrogation. What you notice here is there's no questions asked whatsoever. Rather, what there's brought are indictments, just charges. And the first indictment, you have disregarded the orders of the Sanhedrin. We gave you strict orders. The second indictment is a little more puzzling to me. You're trying to bring this man's blood upon us. I'll tell you why that's a little bit more puzzling. Now, if the charges are that they belong to Jesus, guilty, yep, that's us. You got us. We belong to Jesus, and so we're talking about him. But what's really interesting here is the high priest can't even bring himself to mention the name of Jesus. He says, this man whose blood you're trying to bring upon us. Like speaking Jesus' name would defile his lips. How hard is this guy's heart? The high priest seems to have forgotten about his conversation with Pilate, the ruler of Rome in Jerusalem, on the day that Jesus was tried, when he said, let this man's blood be upon us and upon our children. Now he's saying, we don't want that accusation. Don't try and bring his blood upon us. 
Do you notice what's absent from the charges? There's, there's no mention of the prison escape. They don't bring that up at all because they can't explain it. An angel came? Well, they don't believe in angels, so they're not going to go there. See, their minds are made up. Do not confuse me with the facts. I don't want to hear them. So Peter doesn't soften the confrontation. He just answers with truth. Go with me to verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. What he has to say next is brief, and it's very, very powerful and convicting. He essentially accuses them of being in rebellion against God. Now, this phrase that you've laid someone's blood upon us is a significant phrase. The high priest just used it. He said, you're trying to lay this man's blood upon us. That's a very ancient way of saying, you have accused us of murder. That's what they're saying. Peter, you've accused us of murder. Now, hear it this way. Peter is not trying to get the leaders, quote unquote. That's not his goal here. He's not trying to get the leaders. He wants them to surrender to Jesus as Lord. So it's not a defensive posture. So rather than making a defense, here's what Peter's doing. He's going to rise above the circumstances, and he's going to invite them to recognize who Jesus is. In other words, he puts a salvation invitation out to the Supreme Court. Go with me to verse 30. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, if the Sanhedrin thinks they can bully the apostles into submitting to them, they're absolutely mistaken. Peter is fearless in the midst of this where he's repeating the execution accusation saying, you executed Jesus. But notice what he also includes. God not only raised him, but there's forgiveness in Jesus. He he mentions the need for repentance. So here's why. He's used a phrase very specifically. When he says you put him to death, meaning you hung him on the cross, this phrase only occurs two places in the Bible. Acts chapter 26 Paul goes into a synagogue, and the people in the synagogue literally, with their own hands, try to execute him, kill him. They want to take his life. Well, that same phrase is used here. He's saying this of the court. You used your own hands to put him to death. See, Peter's not backing down. He's intensifying the response. How do you do that, church? How do you do that when your life is hanging by a thread before the most powerful court in the nation who can snap their fingers and say, your life is over. We don't want to see you anymore. How do you do that? When you know that you know that you know that you know. See, if you go back to that first John passage I shared with you earlier, you'll find what John wrote just prior to that. He said, this Jesus that we speak of, we saw him with our own eyes. We handled him with our own hands. This is not not fake. We're not lying to you. This is real. So Peter knows. He absolutely knows that Jesus was resurrected. He's saying to them, "You, you hung Jesus on a cross, but there's forgiveness in Jesus. So that's why in verse 31, he mentions repentance and forgiveness together because the two go together. He's saying, you've got to stop going this direction you're going. Come to Jesus. See, the way I'm reading this is that Peter's taken one last shot at inviting the Supreme Court of the nation to recognize who Jesus is. He doesn't know that his life's not going to be extinguished. 
He doesn't have any idea how much longer he gets to live. Now, watch the court's response in verse 33 because they're totally helpless to control this situation. Verse 33, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. Now, in spite of the overwhelming evidence that what the apostles are saying is real, in spite of all the miracles, they reject the teaching and they violently oppose them. See, the high priest and the senate at this point, they're enraged, and so they want to take their life. So the council says, bring the death penalty. This should tell us something, church. This should tell us that when we present the truth of the gospel, it's got to be decisive and very distinctive. There's no room for the mushy middle. Even if people are going to reject it, they have to take note of the truth of it. And that's what Peter recognizes. You've got to be very decisive and distinctive about this. Now, here's the way the story ends. I'm not going to get into the entire passage, but I'll, I'll just put it up on the screen. There's an individual by the name of Gamaliel who comes into the, he's part of the Supreme Court, he's, he's in the room with the rest of them, and he comes to the position where he stands up and he begins arguing with the court for wanting to take the life of the apostles. Let's just look at the first couple verses without getting into the whole thing. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. Now, here's something about Gamaliel. He's the most respected rabbi in the nation of Israel at this time. He's the highest of the highest. As a matter of fact, he's a teacher of the apostle Paul before Paul became saved. When Paul was known as Saul, Gamaliel was his instructor, his teacher. So Paul writes about Gamaliel, his teacher, who trained him in the world of theology. Gamaliel is so highly respected that all he has to do is stand up in the court and begin speaking, and everybody gets quiet. You can see his authority by watching what happens with the apostles. He sends them out of the room. That's a detail that's reserved only for the high priest. Only the high priest has that kind of authority. He presides over the courtroom, so he exercises his his influence and his power is very subtle. In other words, when he sends them out, he says only for a short time. It's meaning that he thinks this isn't going to take very long. I will convince the court of what they need to do. So look up on the screen with me at verse 38. This is his response. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of them, it will be overthrown But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. Now, his counsel is really good, but I'm not going to give Gamaliel a gold star, and here's why. He's completely in the mushy middle. He's neutral. He he neither leans to the left or to the right. He's not rejecting Jesus like the Sadducees, but he's not accepting him like the apostles. He's just going to say, let's let this thing play out and see how it goes. So he doesn't get a gold star for that, but his counsel is really wise. Leave these guys alone. So verse 40, they take his advice. Verse 40, they took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then release them. Now, someone approached me after the last service and said, hey, I don't get it. If they took his counsel, why did they flog the apostles? Well, they were going to kill them. And so flogging them is the next thing they can do. It's kind of like being the the playground bully, okay? They're going to rub their face in and say, we're going to show you the authority that we have. So they're not killing them, but they're carrying out this really unjust action. 
Understand what's going on here. When an individual was flogged, uh, it was always a man. They never flogged a woman. When they flogged a man, they ripped their shirt off from them, and so they were bare-chested before the court, forced on their knees, and their hands were tied behind them. And then using a three-cord strap of leather, calf-hide typically, which was fairly long, they would begin whipping them. One across the chest with a three-cord strap, for every two, they hit them on the back. Always 39 lashes, because 40 was the limit of the law. 40 was considered a death. You could die from being flogged. So they would stop at 39, leaving a person with a little bit of life left in them. So this is a really shameful thing to have happen to you, and it's incredibly cruel. They just ripped them apart. But watch the apostles' response, verse 41. This is the end of the story. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. I don't know about you, but verse 41 just kind of humiliates me. It does. It, it, it just makes me think of the times when I haven't stood strong for Christ. And we see these guys saying, Praise God, I got to suffer for the name of Jesus. It's, it's humiliating in that sense, yet it's invigorating to see how strong normal people can be. Verse 42, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Of course they did. They're absolutely undaunted by the court. They keep right on preaching Jesus. Who does that? Better yet, how do they do that, church? How do you get to the place where you can do that? Here's two things that I know that they know because Scripture records it. They know specifically that God commands that every man, every woman, every child everywhere will repent and recognize Jesus as Lord and Savior. Scripture declares that. These guys know that. God commands it. It's not a choice. He doesn't suggest people repent. He commands people repent. That's one thing that they know. Here's the second thing that they know, and and I see it all the way through the New Testament. There is this amazing culture of grace. It absolutely permeates the New Testament, and they know it. They're coming to this realization. This culture of grace causes them to recognize there's something special about what they're entitled to do here. Think about who's in the room. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Bartholomew, Thomas, the doubter. See, they didn't always measure up, did they, church? They weren't always the apostles. Matter of fact, they weren't always the disciples. Jesus chose them. They've got a past, in other words. They've got a a history. And there's times when they let Jesus down. Some of them didn't even believe that Jesus was the Messiah until the resurrection. Some of them betrayed him. Some of them openly said to people, I'm not going to believe unless I see the nail prints in his hand. These are individuals with a history. And yet because of this amazing culture of grace... God knows their story, and their story matters to him, just like your story matters to God. So you may be very tempted to disqualify yourself saying, yeah, that's the apostles, Mark. Look at that. They can do that because they're the apostles. Remember, they've got a history too, just like you. 
So before you disqualify yourself and say, God will never use me to speak like he used the apostles, remember their story matters to God, your story matters to God. So you may be tempted this morning to believe that because of your past mistakes or because of your lack of training, God can't use you. The New Testament story is the opposite of that. This is what they know. They know God has a place for them. They know God will use them. And we know this morning, don't we, church, that it all begins with a relationship with Jesus Christ. All starts there, right? Man, you guys are quiet this morning. All starts there, right? Absolutely. It starts with the relationship with Jesus. Without that, don't even try. But with the relationship with Jesus, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm not suggesting you become a street preacher this afternoon, okay? I don't even think that's going to work in our culture. But what I'm suggesting is, as you step into the workplace, you you step into your family environment, your social setting, that you remember how bold these individuals were in willing to speak about what they know that they know that they know. Just don't back down. Be bold like we see the apostles being. Let's pray about that very thing, that God would increase our boldness. Would you join me in that? Father, I thank you for the truth of this story. And that it hasn't been any lost to time. You, re- you caused it to be recorded 2,000 years ago for a reason. And it, you said specifically in Scripture that these things were written for our instruction. I thank you for the instruction that's taken place. And we thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit. So we would ask, Father, that this instruction would be sealed in our heart. And that we would not forget it quickly. Remind us of it. Especially at the times when we feel most timid. God, I ask that you would increase the temperature of boldness among new hope, that we would speak and proclaim loudly the name of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray, amen.